0: Let me say, first of all, it's my pleasure to be here, and uh, I have to tell you that when I walked in the door of this church, I thought about something, I, I, I don't, didn't know whether I'd tell you this or not, but I'm going to tell you. Uh, I remember the first time I ever came in this church in either the fall or of 1967 or the spring of 1968. I was a senior at Mississippi State and I was very involved in Campus Crusade and there was a gigantic Campus Crusade rally uh, for all the colleges in Mississippi and it was being held in this church. Speaker was John Braun, who was one of the best in the country and we had a good group from State coming. Now, this is what happened. At that time I was dating a girl from Belhaven and I it was it was beginning to to get serious, but it wasn't quite locked down yet. And uh, I th- there was a girl at the W that I had thought I might enjoy dating a little. And so uh, I thought, well, I'm not locked down with Joyce Horton at Bellhaven, and she's not going to be there anyway, so I think I'll just go with this girl to the rally over at Columbus at Main Street, or it wasn't called Main Street then, First Presbyterian Church. And so, it won't be about from Bellhaven here. I walked in that door, and there she was sitting right over here. It all came back to me this morning when I walked in. (laughs) That was one of the most interesting dates I ever had in my life. (laughs) Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And by the way, I did marry Joyce. And uh, we were married for 45 wonderful years. The Lord took her to heaven about five years ago. And uh, so uh, he took care of things anyway. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. And we'll just read through verses, verse 14, 13 through 16. Hear now God's Word. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? I want you to notice the word you are the salt of the earth. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. <clears throat> a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And thus reading, reads the ending and hearing read of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. I want to begin by telling you... Uh, a story of something that happened in the Horton family. Uh, as I say, I later married her. And a few years after that, there was a wedding in the family in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And something happened there that I want to tell you about. It happened at the, rece- at the uh, after the wedding was over, after the reception, we were all Lake Charles was too far away to go back to Jackson or anywhere like that. So we all spent the night in a hotel there in Lake Charles, and it was a it was a it was a nice wedding. Horton's had a big family, so there were a lot of us sitting around there eating supper. The wedding was in the early afternoon. We were eating supper at that hotel. And close to where we were sitting, a big group of us, there was a a table. And there was a large man sitting there with a couple of friends. And the longer he sat there, the more he had to drink. And he got louder and louder and louder and more and more filthy-talking profane. And I sat there uh, thinking, we had small children there, thinking, what am I supposed to do? I, this, I, this, I can't, we can't put up with this. We, I don't know what I'm going to say, but he's not going to like it. And he's a whole lot bigger than I am. And uh, But I, we can't put up with this. It's got to stop. And so I finally mustered up my courage and stood up. And lo and behold, Joyce's little sister, Frosty, the shells know who she was, Frosty beat me to the punch. And she literally got, went, and she's about five foot two, went over and got right in front of that big man, leaned over and got right in front of him, and she said, pardon me, mister, but the God you're cursing happens to be the one I worship, and would you hush? And he melted... (laughs) Like nothing you've ever seen, didn't say another word, and about 20, 15, 20 minutes later, he left. Now, the point in telling you this story is this: How long have you? How long has it been since you've done something like that? Or have you ever done anything like that? You see, what we're going to talk about and think about this morning is what Jesus is saying in the text. That depending on the context, we are to be witnesses for Him wherever we are. He's talking about being a witness. And it doesn't have to be as direct as Joyce's little sister was that time. And and again, depending on the context, it can be your smile. It can be a handshake. It can be your attitude during adversity. Or it may be and often should be a word spoken directly. The point is God intends us, now listen to what I'm saying, that God intends us to be growing, sowing Christians. What's the last command he gave before he went back up into glory? The Great Commission. The last word he gave us was a command to be a sowing and a growing. He talks about Christian education there in that uh, Matthew 28, 18-20. And he talks about evangelism and witnessing. That's the last thing he told us to do. Um, not everybody has the same spiritual gift to do it in the same way. And that's another whole subject, and we don't have time for that this morning. But we're all commanded to fulfill the Great Commission. Now listen to this one. We're all commanded to fulfill the Great Commission in some way, but we're not all commanded to fulfill it in the same way. Some of us have the gift of personal evangelism. Some of us have the gift of hospitality. Some of us have the gift of administration, and we could go on and on with that. But the point is we're all supposed to be involved. You may not even know what your spiritual gift is, and if if you don't, I would challenge you to try to find out what that is. Very important. The point I want to make this morning is remember that the mood of the verb that's spoken here in the verses I read to you is indicative. It's indicative, it is a statement of fact. This is important. He is not urging us to be something that we are not, He is telling us what we are. And the last sentence I'm going to say, or last sentence or two I'm going to say in this sermon, is, is going to fulfill what I just said right then. He is telling us what we are. He is speaking now in, a, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking in the context of persecution, and he says two things. He says, We're to be salt, and we're to be light. What does salt do? Well, it does a lot of things. But one thing is, if you get too much of it in your mouth, you get thirsty. Jesus is telling us that we're supposed to live in such a way that we make other people thirsty for the gospel. One of Joyce's sisters, when they moved to Crystal Springs, she got to be friends with the president of the bank down there, the uh, the, the wife of the president of the bank in Crystal Springs. And there was a women's organization, and I can't remember what it's called. Uh, uh, Anyway... Um, and, and they did a lot of social things together. And, and this was going on for a year. And one day, Celia came to Joyce's sister, the, the bank's president, said, I've just noticed something about you. You're different from the rest of us. What, what's the deal? And she said, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything different about me. Uh, but, but whatever you I, I I don't know. And she said, Well, there's something about you that you've got about Christianity and spiritual things that I want. And Celia eventually out of that became a Christian. And I had the pleasure of teaching a Bible study down there to young couples for a while. Joyce's sister Beverly had made Celia thirsty for the Gospel. Salt makes you thirsty. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Here's the point though. Jesus Himself is the light of the world. That's what John chapter 8, verse 12 says. Jesus is the great light who has come to people in darkness. That's what Matthew Four sixteen says, Those who belong to Jesus are brought out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light that 's what Colossians one eleven and 12, uh, twelve and thirteen says, and so we are to become the light in the Lord we 're to live as children of the light we 're to have nothing to do with deeds of darkness if we can help it that 's what Ephesians chapter five verses eight through fourteen said we 're to expose the deeds of darkness by our, expose the deeds of darkness by our light. I'm going to be honest with you, I've been in this game a long time. I'm convinced that not many people understand what this means. And I'll explain that as we go through. Because in explaining what he means, Jesus uses two pictures. The first is a city that can't be hidden because it it is placed prominently upon a hill. The second is a light that ought not be hidden because it's intended to give light to people in a house. Let's take those two. City set on a hill. Well, in in our sophisticated, somewhat sophisticated age of refrigerators and freezers, we still understand the effects of salt or the lack of it. And by the way, I'm the only person, I think, that goes to a restaurant anymore that asks for salt. It's disappeared from the table of most restaurants. And I, I, I know the science behind that, but I still think about it and like a little flavoring. Uh, but unless we've experienced, now listen to what I'm about to say, unless we've experienced rural life, it can be a little bit more difficult for us to appreciate the concept of darkness. We lived in Memphis for 20 years in East Memphis. How many times did I go outside at night in the yard and look up and say, where are the stars? It oh, must be heavy clouds tonight. And then after I'd been there about two or three years, I realized we weren't ever going to see any stars. The lights of the city of Memphis just were so bright that it blocked the stars. And then we moved to Nashville and lived in Franklin. And about half the lights there were blocked, even though we were living in Franklin. Half the stars there were blocked, even though we were living in Franklin. Because of the the, uh, the light, we didn't really understand what darkness was like. Uh, and I, th- I think that's the point to make. Have you ever been to Mammoth Cave? I bet, I bet somebody here has. I bet you've been to Mammoth Cave, uh, and, or been to Ruby Falls? And what happens when you go down inside those? And you're there, oh look at those stalactites, look at those stalagmites, this is so interesting. Oh I'm so glad we did this. It's a little bit cold but I like it. And then what do they do to you? They turn off the lights. And I want to tell you that's the darkest dark I've ever experienced in my life. It is cold, (laughs) the lights are turned off, and it is very, very dark. And you can put your hand in front of you right here and you can't see it. And it even becomes a little bit strange to talk. And you think, I wish they'd hurry up and turn on the light. I don't have any doubt that the people listening to Jesus, when He taught this greatest sermon that was ever preached or taught, when He preached this sermon they knew what darkness really meant. And they knew what He probably, I think they probably knew what He meant when He talked about the city of a significant set on a hill. Who do you think went through their mind? Of course you know, Jerusalem the city set on the hill was Jerusalem. It gave light because it was the center of their faith. But then Jesus gives it a dramatic twist when He says that He, not Jerusalem, He was the light, the light of the world. That's what the text says. And that His disciples were to be a part of sharing that light. That's what He's saying there. I think a few things are more important to realize today in our context, in our culture. Folks, if you don't understand that our culture is coming apart in America today, you got your head in the sand. I've seen more things change in the last 25 years than I ever dreamed. I fear greatly for what my grandchildren are going to inherit if things don't change, if God doesn't send a great spiritual awakening. The extent of the darkness in our culture is growing. And what happens when it gets so very dark, as I said, when you're in a cave like that, you can't even see your hand. That's what's going on around us. Folks cannot think correctly anymore. And things that were talked about in the closet 30 years ago are out in the open and language is so coarse now. It's happened in our lifetimes. And people have lost direction and they've become disoriented. It's true, it's very true morally. And, if, and, it, and remember what Jesus said, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So if the culture is becoming dark and people don't have any light within them to begin with, that is have Christ in them, have the Holy Spirit inside them, it really is really, really dark for those folks. That's our world today. I think people have lost their sense. I've already alluded to it. I'm going to illustrate it a little bit. They've lost their sense of moral bearings and they're blind to the terrible consequences. Even the PCA has scared us in the last few years. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes evil is called good and good is called evil. I'm not saying that's in the PCA, but the PCA has wandered a bit. What enlightenment, what enlightenment to play on words takes modern man back to practices that were abominated in what was called the Dark Ages. My wife, Dina, has a sister who is a research scientist for St. Jude Hospital in Memphis. About two years ago, she and her whole department were probably didn't know St. Jude has a branch in Columbus, Ohio. She was transferred to St. Jude, I mean to Columbus, Ohio. She told us a few months ago that she has a new uh, boss. Her boss is not really a scientist, just an administrator. But that young 30-year-old person I use that word on purpose. Told her that if she didn't quit using masculine and feminine pronouns, she probably would lose her job. What pressure to put on someone who's worked for St. Jude for about 35 years and done great things. Think about how many people are so in favor of birth control via Planned Parenthood, via abortion, and then can turn right around and be stringently opposed to capital punishment. See the inconsistency of that? Modern man is so completely surrounded by darkness that he can't see his moral and spiritual foolishness. And if he had only lived... within a hundred miles of a city it might light up the night sky and he might see his profound spiritual need and repent. Wait a minute. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Are you ready? (laughs) Jesus says in the text that I read that you and I are the city. We're the city that they need, that people need. (laughs) Bob Dylan sang it 40, 50 years ago. The times they are changing. Wow, was that prophetic. And the people need to see the light. And Jesus says, we are the light. We need to shine. We need to be salt and light. Okay, I'll tell you a little story. I'm not trying to be cutesy when I tell you this, and you all—I have a—you've been in this a long time. You have lots of stories. I do think I have the gift of personal evangelism. I'm not trying to sound smarty when I tell you this, but this is one of many stories I could tell you. I remember getting on an airplane in Jackson. I don't know why I was flying from Jackson, but I was flying somewhere from Jackson, and I got on an airplane. I like to talk. If the Lord opens it up, I like to share my faith. And uh, this man said, well, well-dressed man, three-piece suit, sat down next to me. We started talking just about the time we were taking off. I said, introduce myself. Well, uh, what do you, I asked, what do you do? He said, oh, I'm a lawyer here in Jackson. I said, oh, that's great. Um, oh, my father-in-law is Frank Horton. He's the one of the founding partners of Daniel Coker, Horton Bell. And um, I have a daughter who's a lawyer in, in Nashville. He, she's the coach, top coach lawyer for Davidson County. And, and uh, so the conversation got going. We talked a little bit about that. And, I said, and he said, what do you do? <laughs> I said, I, I work in the largest organization in the world. He said, really? I've always wanted to talk to somebody who worked for the Mitsubishi Corporation. <laughs> I said, oh, it's much larger than that. He said, what? What in the world do you do? Where where are y'all located? I said, we're located all over the world. (laughs) I said, we meet every Sunday. He said, oh, you're a preacher. <laughs> and I said, I sure am. I'd like to talk to you about that. And so the Lord, without being offensive, and I didn't cram anything down His throat, allowed me to share my faith with Him for a 15 minutes or so of the flight. It was a very, very good conversation. Um, let's talk about the lamp in the house. Jesus further develops it of the, the idea of the lamp to give a, a, a light to those in the house. The lamp is not to be hidden away. That's what we've been doing, I'm afraid. The Christian who's become light in the Lord should shine for the Lord, for his holiness and his good deeds will be seen in others. Peter says this very thing. 1 Peter 2.12 he talks about that we are to declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong they see our good deeds and glorify our God who is in Heaven. In 1973 I was called to be the organizing pastor, church planter of the first Briarwood Mission Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, we had 13 families. That's what we started with. And it was a a really, it was a hard time. Never worked so hard in my life. But it was a good time. One of the men that was the elders, one of the elders that became an elder in our church, and the church made it and is a real strong powerful church in Birmingham now today. Um, One of the men who made it was a man named Don Richards. Don Richards is one of the best elders I've ever seen. One time I, I asked Don, I said, Don, tell me how you became a Christian. <clears throat> he said, well, it's kind of an interesting story, but he said, if you want to hear it, I'll tell you. I said, yeah, tell me. He said, well, uh, Rita and I got married in the early 60s, and uh, <clears throat> we were not Christians, and but we thought, you know, we ought to go to church once in a while. And we saw where there was this group organizing on a storefront there in Cahaba Heights. Called, it was going to be called Briarwood. And we decided, well, let's just, let's just drop in there. So they went. And they liked it. And they, they said, so let's go a few more times. So they went about three or four or five times. And then the organizing pastor, you'll know his name, Frank Barker, said to Don Richards, he said, Don... What do you do on Saturday mornings?" And Don said, I usually wash my car. He said, Well, you know, I kind of like enjoy washing cars too. Would you mind if I came over and helped you? And Don thought, This is weird. But yeah, okay, sure, come on. Frank Barker came over and helped Don Richards wash his car for eight straight Saturday mornings. And on the eighth morning, Don said to Frank, Frank why are you doing this? And Frank said, Don, because I don't think you're a Christian and I want to talk to you about it. And that morning Frank Barker became a real believer and he became one of the best elders I ever saw. Somebody said, and I read it somewhere, and I can't remember where, that evangelism is loving someone until they ask you why. Folks, we don't regenerate somebody else's heart. We're not the reason that they're changed. We're just sometimes an instrument that God uses. That is a work of God's sovereign grace that brings newness of life. But it's our responsibility to live our lives in front of others that they're challenged by. It's our responsibilities to shine. It's our responsibilities to speak on occasion so that others can see salvation expressed in the flesh and blood reality of our daily lives. That's what Jesus' point He's making here. We can't hide under cover. And I want to say there's a reason they call Presbyterians the frozen chosen we don't do this very much. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about being the kind of person that when they see you coming they run away. <laughs> no. I'm talking about learning how to share your faith naturally. To be salt and light. I'm almost through but I want to get down to the real world that we're living in right now. I am an inveterate reader. Since I was a little boy I've read everything I could get my hands on. <laughs> I could make you laugh telling some stories about that, but I won't. Um, and I'm not, I don't want to impress you with what all I've read. I won't do that. But one of the writers I like is James Michener. About two years ago I read his massive novel Space on the Space Program. Great stuff. Also read Centennial. Centennial is about the settling of the state of Colorado. And it has a, has a story about, now you know the reason for the title of the sermon, an elephant. Michener describes the migration of a young Mennonite farmer, Levi Zent, and his new wife, Ellie, from Pennsylvania to the west coast. They loaded, everything, they loaded everything they had into a Conestoga wagon, and they headed for Oregon. Well, they got to the Rocky Mountains, and they had all kinds of trouble. And then they just got over the, the pass, over the mountains, uh, the far side, and that's when it happened. Levi went, one night, went out one night to check his oxen. And out of the shadows rose up a great elephant. And Michener describes it this way, that elephant was gigantic, 30 or 40 feet tall with wild curving tusks and beady eyes that glowed. And when that happened, Levi's resolve to go to Oregon vanished immediately. And he went back to the camp and he told his wife, And he told the others that they were turning back and they were going to settle in Colorado. And they said, why? What's happened? And Levi said, I saw the elephant. Seeing the elephant, that is such effective imagery. That touched me when I read that. It's so effective for all those formidable experiences in life that leave us shaken and uncertain about ourselves that graphically remind us that we're finite and it, 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 is, it, it makes us realize we can't play God with our future or with our lives or with our destinies. You see, it's when you see, now listen, this is the most important thing I'm, I'm saying now. Listen to me. When you see the elephant and you have a witness during that time, then you've become a light. I love personal evangelism training. I went all the way to Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and learned it from the horse, from D. James Kennedy. Got to know him personally. And as great as that is, and I'm all for it, this, what I'm talking about, is how you best become the light of the world. I'm talking about those crisis times, crisis experiences, those watershed moments. When things don't go the way you planned and reason doesn't make sense and life is simply too much and you're jolted down to the very center of your being. You know what I'm talking about. One morning you go in your child's bedroom, she's four years old. And you wake her up, and she's got bruises all over her. And you think, no, don't tell me this little girl's got leukemia. No, no, she's been a picture of health. And you rush to get her to the hospital at that time in Jackson. And the doctor takes a long time, and you're praying like you've never prayed before. Lord, please, not leukemia. And the doctor finally says, well, I'm not sure, but I think this is ITP. And I said, what's that? I said it just like that. I shouldn't have been so abrupt, but I was so scared. And I wrote it down so I'd always remember. Idiopathic thrombocytic purpura. ITP, idiopathic thrombocytic purpura. It's a blood disease, a rare blood disease. But he said, I think we can treat it and I think it's going to be okay. But she'll be in the hospital for about ten days. Listen, I asked the whole world to pray. And she was okay. She became okay. And she's a picture of health today. Or maybe it's like it was for me 10 and a half years ago. One night we're sitting at the table with some of the girls and their children, and husbands. And my wife Joyce, who was an AP senior English teacher, says, my abdomen is hurting. And I tried to be a smart aleck and say, Joyce, you're the only person in the world that would say it like that. Your stomach's hurting. It wasn't funny then, it's not funny now. An hour later, I was rushing her to the hospital. She was throwing up all over the place. And I found out that night, when they came back in after all the tests, she's got a tumor in her body the size of a football. She's got kidney cancer. I couldn't talk. I fell on the floor. And for five minutes I couldn't get up and I couldn't talk. And when I got up she finally said, can you pray? And I said, I don't know. I'll try. And the Lord spared her for five years, but then he took her to heaven. But all during that time I remember thinking, Lord, please let me be bearing this up like I've been a preacher in front of all these people. Don't let me fall apart now in front of all these people. Please let me be a strong witness for you. Let my light shine. I remember praying that so many times. You get fired from the only good job you've ever had, and you don't think you'll get another. You're in a terrible automobile crash, and the person sitting next to you tries to say something, then spits up blood stops breathing. Oh, here's a happy one. You get married. And a few months later, you come home one night and your wife looks you in the eye and says, honey, I think I'm pregnant. And so you go to the York County Health Department the next day in South Carolina where we were living. And she has the test. and never will forget what that lady came said when she came back to us. She said, it's positive. Is this your first child? And we said, yes. And she said, your life will never, ever be the same. Or how about my daughter in New Orleans? Her husband was on a, a fellowship at Ochsner's. Calls us one night and says, Daddy, Mama, I don't have I don't have just one baby. I don't have two. I don't have three. I have four. They're 11 years old now. Or two generations ago, there's a war. And your husband is called up and sent to the front lines. How many stories do I read about people whose marriages came apart during that? Or you have a crippling disease and you realize you're never going to stand up straight or walk again like you did before. I could go on and on. That's the elephant. When those things happen, it is an end-of-line experience in a way. Some of them are not exactly that, but most of what I mentioned were. Okay, anybody in this room that's about 35 or 40 years old, I want you to think about something. Has your life turned out like you thought it was going to turn out when you were 21 years old? If it is, raise your hand. Folks, I preach in a lot of places nobody's ever raised a hand for that. We all think we got it figured out, we're going to do this and do this, or or a few years later we think this is what I'm going to do and then the Lord has different plans. Okay, here it is, and I'm through. Terrible, frightening, nightmarishly proportioned experiences that you can't handle in the usual way. That draw you up short and remind you that life isn't the rose garden you thought it was. They threaten your composure and your sanity and even your faith you 've been taught all your life that romans eight twenty eight is true all things uh, for a Christian, all things work together for the good, for those that love God that are called according to his purpose, and you think i don 't think this is working so good for me. Why am I talking about all this? You know why what 's going on in this country right now what 's got people scared to death? Some of you know people who've lived through what I'm just talking about. Some of you know people who've died. Some of you know people that, or perhaps in in the little tiny little church in Raymond, Mississippi right now, that one of the key deacons and elders both have COVID within the last two weeks. We're we're in in a way of crisis time. And this is the time for your light to shine and for my light to shine. And for us to have that faith that shows forth in the midst of a crisis and not come apart and show that we belong to Him, and that will be something the Holy Spirit uses. I want you to notice again, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. What does the text say? He says, you, now look at the word word, indicative, are the light of the world. He didn't say you will be. He didn't say you need to be. He didn't say you ought to be. He said you are. Amen. May it be so. Pray that you are this week and the rest of your life. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be light and salt that we would pause and reflect and think if we've really been called to be your children in the midst of this culture, uh, your followers, your disciples uh, that we would be better at sharing our faith, talking about it, at having a faith of strength when crisis times inevitably come. They are always going to come, and we pray that when it does happen, we would show forth to the watching world that we're salt and light. Thank you again for our time together this morning in your Word. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.